Hello everyone, it's October 17th, 2023. Well, Psyche successfully launched, and though it's gonna be a while before it reaches its destination, we thought it would be fun to talk about what's gonna happen on its way there and what it will be doing once it arrives. It's a main belt episode this week, so let's do it and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 430 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So uh, we talked a little bit about what uh, our intro banter should be, and we had nothing better than a video game recommendation for me. Uh, so here's my video game recommendation. I just started playing this this week. Uh, yesterday. It was, yesterday was Saturday, and uh, I had been uh, coding all week at work. And normally on the weekends, I sit and write code uh, because I've been doing other things at work. And this week it was uh, all code week. And so I was like, I do not want to sit and write code. I don't have anything right now that's interesting me. Uh, It's time for video games. And so I you know, did that thing, click through steam, uh, looking at my wish list. Nah, nothing on there. I want to see and did, did a little bit of searching. And I found a game called uh, strange horticulture and immediately purchased it and, uh, played it for like six hours. And it, it's really good. It is like a mystery puzzle game, right? Like it's, it feels the content feels very much like one of those like mystery games where you're just like trying to solve a murder or something. But the puzzle aspect of it all comes through uh, plants and map reading. Um, And so you play as um, somebody who just inherited a plant store, like a horticulturalist shop. And um, you play the entire game from like your desk at, you know, in the greenhouse. So on one side of the screen, you have, um, a view of your greenhouse and all the plants that you've collected, um, and like tags, because you need to identify the plants. You usually get them without an identification. Um, and then you've got, a uh, on the other side of the screen, your desk where people like come up and purchase plants or, you know, advance a story. Um, and then you've got a big desk where you can put documents and, uh, reference materials, sort of like a papers, please kind of feel. And it is really lovely. It's very slow and calm, but the story is, you know, it's got enough peril and excitement, uh, that it's really good. And I really love the puzzles. Like most of the puzzles are like, Hey, let's look through, all of the notes that you've gotten about different plants and figure out which plant this is, or the customer is asking for a plant to solve a particular problem. So let's go figure out which plant that's supposed to be. Okay. Here's the, here's the name and a little bit of like ID information. And now let me look at all the plants that I have and see if I can figure out which one uh, is this plant. Um, and then, like I said, there's also like map reading. So you get clues that relate, uh, to locations on the map and, um, you have a, a an energy bar that's called the the will to explore, the will to wander, and it, it goes up as as curious things happen. And so you can go uh, visit someplace on the map, and it like gives you a, a text description of what you found, and so, sometimes some sketches and things. But you know, you're going out and finding plants or finding clues and stuff. Um, and it's just one of those like really lovely like almost like escape room kind of feel where it's like, you've got a bunch of puzzles and you don't know what the answers to these puzzles are. And you don't know what solving this puzzle is going to do to advance the story. And you just kind of like work through things one at a time and kind of make your way through this world. It's, it's really good. I I really enjoy it. I've played, yeah, I think about six hours now. I feel like I'm about 
75 percent of the way through so it's you know not a super long game but also a lot longer than some puzzle games like this like narrative puzzle games and there's a cat there, i was a just gonna that, say it looks like there's a nice little black cat <laughs> yeah there's there's a black cat that you can pet and most of the time the cat is sleeping on the desk and when somebody comes up to the desk and rings the bell the cat wakes up and is either uh, annoyed enough to sit there and look pissed or nonplussed enough to go back to sleep wait non nonplussed means confused doesn't it that's one of those words where the meaning is changing Psyche has successfully launched. This is more of like a mission preview, I suppose. We're going to discuss what's going to happen over the next several years because it's going to, well, most of it's going to happen yeah. several years from now, right? Because <laughs> it's going to take a while to get to its mm. destination. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of news about the launch because it's like, oh, it launched. Well, so, okay. So, uh, Rewind Psyche was selected uh, in the Discovery program as Discovery 14 uh, in January of 2017. It was proposed by the person who is now the PI of the mission, uh, Lindy Elkins Tanton of Arizona State University. And right, the, the most we can say about the launch is that, yeah, it successfully launched. This was the eighth Falcon Heavy uh, launch and, you know, the eighth total, the eighth consecutive successful, uh, doing a real bang up job, Falcon Heavy. Uh, they recovered both boosters, they expended the core. And what's really crazy is like when uh, Psyche was originally proposed back in 2017, it was planned to launch basically on the day that it launched. Um, that's not to say that there weren't any schedule changes, though. So right after it was accepted um, as Discovery 14, they actually moved the launch up from the original plan date to uh, to July of 2022. Um, and they were basically targeting a, a more efficient trajectory. Um, and then it got bumped back back, like back to the future, back, uh, mm -hmm. to the, you know, original launch window, um, because, um, uh, some testing equipment got delivered late and the flight soft, the flight software, uh, was not developed on time. Right. So it gets bumped back to the date it actually launched. And part of the reason that it didn't get delayed more than that was actually because there was, I don't, I don't remember if we talked about it in the show very much, uh, but JPL had um, a review, like a third-party review, come back and say, hey, y'all are doing a real bad job communicating with each other, engineer to engineer and engineer to manager. Like the communication was just cloudy and unclear. And this review said, look, you are at risk of d delaying or failing uh, missions because of this. So they uh, stopped and rethought the way they were doing things. Um, they identified Psyche as being something that was behind schedule at the time. And so they actually delayed the Veritas mission um, so that they could reassign people from Veritas to go work on Psyche. And that was a success. They, they did wind up uh, meeting their launch date. Um, there were a few like very late kind of schedule changes, like late as in this year, 2023, that moved the launch date backwards and forwards by a couple weeks. I'll mention one at the very end. Uh, but for the most part, nothing was too major in the schedule. Like it's, it, it was a pretty, uh, a pretty good, <laughs> like schedule progression. It, 
pretty neat. The mission or the, the launch itself changed a lot um, in that Psyche has had several fellow passenger missions that were supposed to fly with it. But in the end, nothing actually wound up flying with Psyche. So the two missions uh, were Athena, which was going to go to Pallas, the other asteroid, the, uh, the other giant asteroid. Uh, and that's Pallas, P-A-L-L-A-S, not palace as in castle, right? (laughs) And then the other one was actually two spacecraft that was Escapade, uh, which has two uh, CubeSats that were going to fly out to Mars. And of course, Escapade can't make it because they wound up on a trajectory that wasn't going to put them uh, on a good trajectory um, for Escapade to to stop at Mars. Is Escapade the one that's now slated for uh, New Glenn? Yes. They are confident in planned 2024 New Glenn launch. So they, they launched on time, uh, but not quite on budget. Yeah, I mean, not quite on budget. It went from $1 billion to $1.2 billion, And apparently this was just mostly because of the change in the launch date. So I don't know if it was necessarily because of any problems with the spacecraft. But obviously, if you're going to push the mission back, as you have said before, I think specifically, Ben, you had pointed out that just, you know, keeping something costs a lot of money just holding it in storage or however you uh, maintain Mm -hmm. a a spacecraft before you actually launch it. And so that increased the budget by quite a bit. 20%. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. 20% is a lot. Okay. So let's talk about the target. And here, this really uh, is more of a a Dennis thing. So Dennis, if at any point I hit something that you know more about, stop me. (laughs) I want to hear it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So 16 Psyche is the heaviest known M-type asteroid. The number 16 is because it was the 16th minor planet to be discovered. What's really cool is when we were, you know, running around discovering all these minor planets um, and, you know, naming them without uh, a larger naming schema that included like the year of discovery and that kind of thing. We were also assigning uh, symbols, just like all of the all the planets have have you know little logos, like little symbols um, that are derived from like astrology, I believe. Well, I mean, probably from the from like Greek astrology, right? Which modern astrology also draws from. But anyway, so I didn't know this, but like Psyche has its own symbol. It is a butterfly wing with a star above it. And this makes a lot of sense because uh, Psyche, the Greek word, actually means both soul and butterfly. I mean, I- I'm guessing this, this might have been the time when when these were being discovered that you know, you saw a bright light in the sky drifting relative to the stars. Oh, you discovered a new planet. And so there wasn't a distinction between minor bodies and asteroids versus planets. It was just, okay, mm-hmm. here we we have a solar system. I think that got up to like, I don't know, 16, 17 planets before we realized, well, actually a lot of these are orbiting at roughly the same distance around the sun. So they're probably just part of a big belt of objects. And then they yeah. all kind of got demoted the way Pluto did, you know, a couple centuries later. Yeah. Uh, Psyche... Uh, is actually kind of shaped like a butterfly wing. It's more shaped like a russet potato. Um, so it's got three distinct axes. There's the long axis and then like the cross axis and then the shortest axis. And it rotates around that shortest axis. Um, so it's kind of like an oblong pancake, right? Where you've got the short axis runs up and down through the plate and then the medium and long axes run parallel to the plate. Now, Psyche was originally theorized to be the core of an early planet or, you know, an early small planet um, because it is primarily composed of iron and nickel. 
And so we go, oh, cool. This lump of metal is just floating around. The only other large lumps of metal that we know of are inside planets. So this must be the core of a planet. Um, now that theory has fallen out of favor, um, partially, actually, I think primarily due to the density of it. Now that we've, uh, been able to observe it better, we've, uh, locked in a density that's more accurate or accurate enough to start making some assumptions based off of. And so it's, it's actual density is 3.9 grams per cubic centimeter. And I think that's plus or minus like point three grams. Like it's a really small amount. It's very, very accurate. So 0.39, the meteorites on the ground that we found that are composed of uh, iron and nickel, they all have a density of higher up around 7.9 grams per cubic centimeter. So 3.9 to 7.9, that's a big difference. Um, That means that Psyche has a lot of not iron in it, right? (laughs) We don't know what, but it's something other than iron. So if Psyche is a planetary core, then that not iron is going to be space, right? It's going to be nothing. And that results in uh, a property that we call porosity, right? (laughs) I'm telling a joke here, but like uh, if you've got a high porosity asteroid, what you really have is an asteroid with a lot of space in it. And uh, we're talking like 50% porosity. Yeah. Colin in the chat says an iron sponge. And like, it seems unlikely that that this asteroid will be an iron sponge, right? Like if you've got a planet being smashed into pieces, it's not super likely that it's going to have a bunch of, of gaps in it. So if it's not a planetary core, what is it? Well, you know, it might have also just come from a planet. It probably, I mean, I think it probably did come from a planet. I think that's the the consensus. But rather than being just a bare core, it might have been a planet that was in a collision and was smashed to absolute bits. And so then it reaccreted as a mix of metal from the core and silicates from the crust. And this idea is more like instead of taking an orange and peeling it, it's like taking an orange and throwing it in a blender. Like yeah, you're going to get orange juice out of it, but like it's going to be a very different type of orange juice. What's really cool is if this is the correct theory, we found a bunch of meteorites on Earth called mesosidiorites. Is that right, Dennis? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that word either, so okay. that's as good a pronunciation as I got. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I hope so. so mesosidorites. Uh, mesosidorites, yeah, I think I added a, a weird emphasis. So anyway, these, these mesosidorites are sort of a class of meteorite that kind of have the same uh, theoretical mix, right? It's metal and silicates together. And so if this is the correct like formation theory for Psyche, it may turn out that Psyche comes from the same parent body as these mesociderites. Yeah. Something like that. Like these, these meteorites on, Earth may be from the same planet that got smashed up. And that's pretty cool. A third theory that Wikipedia lists is that it might have been differentiated at one point, having a core and a crust, and that which is the same composition that Ceres and Vesta have. So like that's not weird. But that at some point it had volcanoes of molten iron. Um, and I'm assuming that these are as the as the core cools, the outside hardens, and then it starts contracting and squeezes the the juicy center out. And so these iron volcanoes would have erupted, covering the surface um, uh, of the asteroid, which would be really weird uh, and really cool. 
I don't understand how that would have led to um, the lower density that we see, but I'm assuming it's just because you have a crust with core on the outside, which is interesting. Um, we've done a decent number of observations uh, of Psyche, and they kind of start uh, helping us decide what of these theories might be true, right? Like first off, they help us lock in the density. Um, but also like observations out of Mauna Kea show evidence of hydroxyl ions on the surface, which are likely due to hydrated silicates being present. And you wouldn't expect uh, any water to have been around when Psyche was being formed, right? It's probably a dry formation. And so those hydrated silicates are probably coming from impacts with like smaller asteroids, like smaller C-type asteroids. And then one of the interesting things is that we also see the radar albedo. It varies across the surface. And that likely suggests a, a variety of regolith densities. In other asteroids, when we see different radar albedos, it correlates to different densities of the regolith. And so like, I'm thinking that probably suggests impact events as well, if you've got different you know, different types of regolith in different places. But also um, the idea of iron volcanoes is sort of reinforced as, you know, you, you don't get even deposition. And so you can get the, the albedo changing across the surface of the body. Okay, so Psyche, is, as a mission, uh, it's got like a huge list of science goals. And I, I wanted to run through a quick summary. So the obvious uh, goals are to characterize the geology, the shape, the composition, the magnetic field, and the mass distribution um, of Psyche. And like, I think the only one that we haven't already talked about really is a magnetic field, which is a big question, right? If you've got molten metal, you are going to have a dynamo effect. And as the a dynamo effect, which is like an electromagnet, you've got conductive materials moving in a circle that creates uh, a flow of electrons and a magnetic field. And so if, if there was this dynamo effect, like we see on earth, then maybe there's sort of a frozen magnetic field around Psyche, which would be really cool, I think. But then the, the other ones, you know, geology, shape, composition, mass distribution, that all kind of leads back into how the heck did this thing get here? So they definitely want to determine whether Psyche is the core of a previous planet or if it is composed of unmelted metal, like little, you know, shot bits of metal that cooled before Psyche was formed. And potentially, if Psyche does turn out to be a planetary core, um, then studying Psyche may help us better understand uh, iron planetary cores like Earth's. They want to determine if small metal bodies like Psyche uh, tend to incorporate the same light elements, like the same non-metallic elements, as Earth's core does, or as we believe Earth's core does. And the big reason why this might differ is because Earth's core is under high pressure. And then they also want to figure out if Psyche was formed in oxidizing or reducing conditions, specifically if they were more oxidizing or more reducing than Earth's formation conditions. Psyche is this really wonderful analogy for bigger planets in a way that not a lot of other asteroids are. Um, and so a lot of the questions that are being asked of Psyche the mission and Psyche the asteroid are really questions about where we live and about the, you know, the big stars of the solar system, uh, the, the giant planets, 
And we're asking those questions of the smaller body and, and learning about very different bodies in our system. I think it's a really cool, like uh, inspirational type of mission, right? Like we, we love these, like by studying this thing, we can learn more about earth. Like it's, it's just good. Onboard the spacecraft are 30 kilograms, that's 66 pounds, worth of science instruments. They have a multispectral imager. They have a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer, which is like really cool. Um, they have a, a magnetometer. Um, and then a little bit of a cheat here, their X-band communication array is also going to be serving as a gravity measurement tool. Um, and I believe this is uh, Doppler rather than like gravity lensing, right? Um, but when they call home, they're also going to be able to, to measure the gravity around Psyche. Notice how this, how Psyche's pulling on Psyche. <laughs> and yeah, right. I was wondering how that worked. So it just has to do with how it pulls on the spacecraft itself. And that affects transmission. Doppler gives you velocity information. And so if the mm -hmm. spacecraft's moving faster or slower than you might think at a given position, you can kind of make some inferences about the, the gravity field of 16 Psyche. Yeah. I figured it, it would be able to measure that locally, but... Yeah, like maybe you can like beam X-band uh, photons yeah. at the thing and yeah. I think that's a very reasonable first impression. That's for half a second. That's exactly what I thought. And I went, wait a minute. No, <laughs> figured it out. Now that would be cool to do <laughs> to send like, like, uh, grace does that on earth. And so you could basically yeah. send a spare space, send a pair of spacecraft to some other world, have them basically beam a light between each other and then measure that separation changing as they both go around and like, you know, as one speeds up and the other slows down, that means there's a mass concentration that's causing it to accelerate or decelerate. I don't know. I guess now would be a good time for me to inject the one thing I wanted to, I guess, ask you guys. Um, when you look at Psyche, especially these pictures of it in the clean room, doesn't it look like it's got kind of devil horns sticking out of it? The magnetometer oh. and the gamma ray spectrometer? Yeah, they kind of they kind of look more like, like fox ears to me. Or maybe a butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let's let's talk more about the other systems on the vehicle, other than the uh, the science instruments. Um, it has four SPT one forty Hall effect thrusters. Uh, these are very familiar ion thruster, right? Um, it has two gigantic solar arrays. Um, originally, they were just straight arrays with four panels in a line, um, and now they're actually five panels each. Uh, arranged in the shape of a plus. So that's three going straight out and then two sticking up and down from the middle. The solar rays will generate 20 kilowatts at Earth's altitude above the sun and 2.3 kilowatts up at Psyche. And like, Psyche is not that far, right? Like we need to remember the, the square cube law here. Psyche is... I don't know what its semi-major axis is. It's probably like two and a half AU, something like that. I think it goes like as low as maybe maybe it goes down as low as two and a half and goes up to like I'm, three and a half. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. By the way, I don't think that's quite square cube. I think you mean the inverse square law. Inverse square. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. I mean it. It is derived from the square cube law. In principle, but, yeah, you can't think of, but yeah, yeah. If you think of a expanding sphere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was actually, I was pretty close. I just looked it up. The semi-major axis is uh, 2.92 AU, uh, and it gets it. It goes up and down between 2.53 and 3.32. So I, I mean, 
in total, I was off by like I thought uh, you were 20th. looking at the article on Wikipedia. No, yeah, you were so spot on. I fig- I honestly thought you were looking it up. <laughs> That's how good you. No, were. <laughs> I, I pulled that right out of my butt. Okay, pretty good. So right, so psyche isn't that high up above the sun, but like you very quickly uh, lose power on solar rays. They just have to be gigantic when you move uh, away from the sun. And then David, this is totally. Uh, your area of, I don't want to say special interest, but like your, your area of fascination, um, maybe because you said it once and Dennis and I just r- continually reapply it to you, but <laughs> psyche, probably, probably uh, more so that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still okay with that. Psyche has on board laser communications. So it's called the deep space optical communications or DSOC, DSOC. And I'm confident that this is NASA's first optical communications attempt outside of the moon's orbit, right? Or like, you know, the cis lunar space, like close to the moon. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think this is, I don't think anybody else has done it either. So I think this is the first optical comms attempt outside of, outside of the moon's orbit, which is really cool. Um, so they're going to be doing like this evaluation or demo campaign for the first year. Um, and after that, they may wind up continuing to use it. I can't imagine that Psyche is going to generate so much data that they really need those high data rates. Um, but who knows? Maybe we're going to get really, really beautiful, crisp and clear uh, topography information because we can just downlink every single thing and then do a bunch of post-processing here on Earth. So what's really cool is that this... Uh, laser that's on board is really power hungry. Uh, it is a 75 watt system in total. I don't know if part of that is a laser and part of it is the computer systems that go along with it and the receiver. I, I believe it's 75 watts in total. So, I mean, that that's a lot of power when you're out at Psyche with only 2.3 kilowatts hitting hitting your solar arrays. I was going to say, like, it must require a huge amount of power, right, at that distance in order for it to even, like, in order for that to yeah. work. And you have here in the notes that they offered to pay an extra $30 million to host this thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, so, I mean, spoiler, but, like, um, 75 watts doesn't seem like that much until you think about the fact that the engines are going to be running almost continually getting this thing out to Psyche, um, which is just going to, you know, 2.3 kilowatts is not going to feel like a lot when you're um, running electric engines. And so the reason that they included it, like you said, David, is that the discovery program um, basically put up a bounty. Anybody who can include this system, um, DSOC in particular, anyone who can include this, uh, will give you an extra $30 million for your program. And that's really cool. I think that's a great trade-off. <laughs> Using DSOC uh, or demonstrating DSOC, evaluating DSOC on Psyche uh, is hope to advance the system up to TRL-6, uh, Technology Readiness Level 6. Um, which means that we'll see it on a bunch of other missions um, like coming up. The uh, the ground link is right now, currently we only have one because it's optics. It's separate from uh, the deep space network sites. So there is uh, a ground link at JPL's Table Mountain facility. That's near Wrightwood, California. Somebody else is going to be listening in though. Uh, the Hale Telescope or Haley Telescope at Caltech's Palomar Observatory in San Diego will also be observing uh, the data stream coming down. And Wikipedia has got 
another sentence that just sounds like absolute jargon. So I'm going to read it. Uh, they're going to be using a sensitive superconducting nanowire photon counting receiver. And I think uh, superconducting makes a lot of sense. No idea why you'd need a nanowire, but photon counting, I know what that is. <laughs> that means very <laughs> sensitive telescope. <laughs> and um, DSOC, by the way, is transmitting in the near infrared. So yeah, it's not like we're going to see a flashing light if you hold up binoculars. It's it's not visible. Uh, even if it was bright enough, it's not visible to humans. This This is not a constellation clouding up the sky issue, right? These are very, very dim and very tiny lights. And it's just one of them. And it's only some of the time. And it's not covering the entire sky with a, a bunch of different light sources. Okay, so all of this is talking about what the vehicle is going to do once it gets out to Psyche. But we need to talk about how it's going to get there and its trajectory around um, the asteroid once it is there. So the trajectory is primarily a spiral trajectory because ion engines, but it is getting a big uh, elbow in its trajectory in May of 2026 as it gets a Mars gravity assist, which, you know, is kind of ironic considering that Escapade got kicked off of this launch because it wasn't a good, a good launch for them. But, you know, then again, Escapade is not using, uh, four ion engines like Psyche gets to. So who who even knows if they would have been able to make it to Mars much less slow down once they got there. So Gravity Assist in May of 2026, it will arrive in late July or early August of 2029. And this is different than its original mission plan called for. And what's interesting, uh, David, you pointed out that the new arrival date means that the light is a little different. Well, I don't know much more than that, but basically, yeah, because of where the asteroid will be in its orbit around the sun, and because of the uh, the type of orbits that Psyche was planned to make, it won't be able to do proper mapping because it does need to be doing it in daylight. Uh, so yeah, they have like these four different science orbits and they're going to have to basically kind of like rearrange them and split them up a little bit. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we have that outlined here. So before we talk about those orbits, um, I promised that I would talk about one of the uh, last minute delays that happened. So this comes down to the cold gas thrusters on board. Um, you know, they're for attitude adjustment and they have like a maximum temperature that they are allowed to operate at. And even though we call it cold gas, they heat up, uh, as they're being fired. And so the subcontractor who included them, uh, gave a bunch of predictions for how long you could run those uh, those thrusters and how much heat they would build up in that time. And it turns out that that wasn't a super good uh, estimate and it had to be revised. And basically, these things are going to run hotter than they were originally predicted to run. And so they actually delayed the launch by about a week so that they could um, update a, quote, select subset of the operating parameters. Basically, if you need to turn this much, how long are you going to fire the thrusters? Which thrusters are you going to fire? Like all that stuff. In there somewhere, they had to update um, and come up with, um, with some new parameters. Now, these changes will affect the vehicle. They said that some of the timeline margins on the way out uh, will be affected. But once it gets to the asteroid, it none of the things that's planning on doing there are going to matter. Honestly, I think the, the big deal is running the ion thrusters. Um, they may have to have a bigger budget on the cold gas thrusters 
Um, I, I am not confident about that. That was just me guessing. Okay, so these orbits. Luckily, when they first designed them, they named them orbit A, B, C, and D. And now that they've rearranged them, they've kept the original names, but now they're out of order. But the nice thing is, I can just read through this list and you'll know what order they were in originally. So orbit A uh, is still going to be the first orbit. That's going to be a 709 kilometer uh, orbit. And th these are all circular orbits, more or less. Um, it has a period of 32.6 hours. It is at an inclination of 90 degrees and they're going to be there for 56 days. During orbit A, they're going to be looking at the magnetic field and doing their preliminary mapping of the surface. Then they go into orbit 1b, which, as you can guess, is the first half of the second orbit. That's at 303 kilometers. That's a, an 11.6 hour period. It's at the same inclination, and they're going to stay there for 192 days. They're going to be looking at the topography and uh, doing more magnetic field mapping. Orbit D is much lower. It's at 75 kilometers. Um, that's a period of 3.6 hours. And this one is actually going to be at 160 degree inclination. And they're going to stay there for uh, 100 days. Uh, 100 days is 66 orbits. And I thought this would be a great time to break out a new vocabulary word. Hexacosii, hexaconta, hexaphobia, which is the fear of the number 666. Um, during orbit D, they are going to be looking at the chemical composition of the surface of the asteroid. Get nice and low and you can do your spectroscopy better. From orbit D, they move to orbit C, which is higher. It's up at 190 kilometers, which is a 7.2 hour period. And they go back to their 90 degree inclination and they stay there for 100 days. Um, they're going to be doing their gravity investigations at that altitude, as well as, you guessed it, mapping the magnetic field. Finally, they're going to enter into orbit B2. So they've like broken an orbit up, they've swapped two orbits, and they took that broken up orbit and moved one end way down to the end. Um, it's the same orbit as B1. I wrote same song, second verse, which I'm very sorry about the earworm. Um, and in orbit B2, they're going to be doing the second half of their topography and magnetic field, uh, second half of the topography and also looking at the magnetic field. So David, my guess, I haven't seen a good animation that shows what the difference in illumination is, but I'll bet you that it, it has to do with the direction that the sunlight is coming in from. And I'll bet that they really want it to, it's whether they are orbiting around the Terminator or if they're orbiting from day, like noon to midnight. And I'll bet they really want to be orbiting the, uh, the Terminator so they can see surface features illuminated from the side. Okay, Doc, so that is our Psyche mission preview. You'll definitely hear more because Psyche's cool. Um, it's probably going to be a while unless something catastrophic happens. But yeah, I, I guess now we just sit and wait until the, the Mars flyby and hope to get some uh, good images of Mars. So let's just do two short and sweets this week. And Ben, what's the first? All right, first up, Spacewalk has been canceled due to a Nauka leak. U.S. Spacewalk 89 was postponed when several days earlier, the radiator on Russia's Nauka science module was found to be leaking. The radiator was brought to the station on board Rosfet in 2010 and recently transferred to Nauka via an EVA. While the leak has ceased, 
NASA postponed the spacewalk, which would collect surface samples from the station's exterior and change out a high-definition camera as a precaution against contamination. The cause of the leak is still under investigation. And then uh, next up, Quest to Fly in 2024. NASA's experimental X-59 supersonic aircraft, developed in partnership with Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, has been delayed from taking flight this year. This mission, which is known as Quest or Quiet Supersonic Transport, aims to develop a supersonic aircraft that eliminates the sonic boom and instead only produces a quiet sonic thump. The delay was necessary in order to resolve systems integration and computer issues. First flight of the X-59 is now expected to be sometime in 2024. Okay, so let's do this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have one winner who is STS-120, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, the clue was face forward, and uh, I guess I already gave away what this is about. Well, well, the clue is not, unfortunately, in reference to STS-120, which launched a few days after this event. And uh, every guesser, or not every guesser, but uh, all of the guesses, uh, unfortunately, none of them actually got the event correctly. And of those... Uh, the majority referenced STS-120, um, which was bringing um, – it, it basically adds some installing modules and relocating things to the forward end of the ISS. So the clue worked as well, which is just unfortunate, an unfortunate confluence of you know, facts to conspire against me and my uh, event, which – was uh, in the 21st of October, so a few days before SDS 120's launch, in 2007, and this was Soyuz TMA-10 uh, doing its re-entry. And what that has to do with being face forward, it's something else, <laughs> but we'll get there. So to give a little background, this event took place October 21st, and so this week of spaceflight history. And if we go back to April 9th, TMA-10 brought Oleg Kotov, Fyodor Yurchikin, uh, two cosmonauts, and then uh, a third uh, participant, uh, Charles Simonyi, who was the first uh, basically space tourist. And this was his first time going to space. He actually flew twice on different Soyuz, Soyuzes. And so uh, they went to the ISS, and uh, Simonyi, you know, then headed back home a few weeks later, while uh, Kotov and uh, your chicken um, basically stuck on board for a little over six months before returning, ultimately. Now, uh, in the meantime, uh, on October 10th, so a couple weeks before this event, uh, Sheikh Musafor Shukor uh, flew on a different Soyuz and so came up. And this was another, um, not so much a tourist, but a spaceflight participant. Uh, Russia and uh, Malaysia had basically come to some uh, agreement and made a program where Malaysia was going to fly its first astronaut. Uh, to space on a Soyuz. And so while uh, Shukor wasn't a seasoned uh, veteran professional lifetime astronaut, uh, he was someone who basically, you know, was just flying on behalf of Malaysia and not so much a, uh, a tourist uh, paying for a seat. I guess his government was paying for the seat, essentially. So there was this swap. So uh, Simone managed to uh, avoid this reentry, which was a doozy. And instead, uh, Shukor wound up uh, on there, uh, rounding out the three-person crew, because right, three people fly in a Soyuz. So then October 21st comes around, the TMA-10 crew, now Shukor, uh, undock and uh, begin their deorbit two hours after undocking from station. Well, things didn't go well. Normally, you know, you have your controlled entry. Uh, the, the descent module that comes back is capable of, you know, giving you some lift. And so uh, you re-enter at about four to five Gs. 
uh, is going to be the most uh, deceleration that you experience. But in this case, uh, something happened and they had to transition to a ballistic reentry, right? Which is much harsher. And uh, for Soyuz, you can hit up to nine Gs of acceleration. And so something bad had happened, something off nominal had happened that caused this kind of emergency trajectory to be chosen. And what that was, I'll talk about. But uh, in the news, um, it was reported uh, basically as, you know, it was unclear exactly what had gone wrong. And there is this stunning line uh, from an official at RKK Energia who basically was talking about, you know, coming in and being able to transition to a ballistic reentry. And he said, quote, if this happened, God forbid, with the American shuttle in which a regime of ballistic descent is not provided, then it would be necessary to go with a funeral procession to meet the astronauts inside it. So that just seems like a needlessly terrible thing to say about your spacecraft suffering an anomaly and failing to re-enter normally. It's good to have a backup, but I suppose the best backup is to not fail in the first place. And I understand that this is this is after, you know, Columbia, which is just insensitive, I think, uh, frankly, but just a weird thing to try and take a pot shot at NASA when you're the one that had a, you know, a mission that came in uh, with people having to hit nine Gs. Uh, so, yeah. so if shuttle had ever like failed to eject the ET, could we expect NASA to say, if this happened, God forbid, on a Soyuz, like... No, a Soyuz doesn't have an ET, and no, a, a, the shuttle doesn't ha- like it's a, it apples and oranges. What mm-hmm. a horrible yeah, thing to say! The shuttle's not the shuttle's not capable. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's not capable of those types of reentries anyway, right? Because it's like a winged vehicle, so you'd have yeah. to be doing something really, really wrong in order to be hitting, you know, high G's like that. Good I don't God. see it's just such a out of left field thing to say. It, it's right? such it's a it's a like it takes talent to not only take a pot shot at arrival, but to also like invoke the death of astronauts while doing it. Like that's absolutely horrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it snuck, it jumped out at me reading that. And so anyway, yeah. So, okay. Uh, one thing that happens uh, when, uh, as part of a ballistic reentry, I guess I didn't realize, is that because of the harsher environment that you're putting the spacecraft through, uh, you need to do a roll spin. Uh, the Soyuz automatically, descent module automatically goes into a roll spin uh, to make sure that you, you, know, you try to get your momentum going in that direction and stabilize you so that you don't end up in a pitch spin, which uh, human beings would not be able to survive if you were tumbling head over feet uh, while coming through this high G reentry. Is it more about the humans on the inside or more about the direction that the heat shielding is in? So the whole spacecraft does have a heat shield or not, sorry, doesn't have a heat shield. The whole spacecraft does have thermal insulation, so it can survive a bit more of a thermal environment, but probably not all the way through. Um, We'll actually get to that, (laughs) which uh, is the ominous... Reason, just remember, this clue for this week is called Face Forward. So real quick, do you know how fast that rotation would have to be before it's, I guess, unsurvivable? Um, no. I do know what the, the, the role, I did see the role number called out somewhere, but I'm not sure what the other one is. Okay. Um, the role is 12 and a half degrees per second. Oh, okay. That's that's not that bad. It's controlled and, you know, it's intentional. So it's... it's right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's a role-stabilized vehicle rather than like... Like this is a, a much different type of roll stabilization than like a hobby rocket has, which, you know, spins around at 10, 20, 30 hertz. So right. Like yeah. Real fast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In that case, you could really spin those up. No problem. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that would also kill you probably <laughs> depending on how fast that spins, but you can, 
that can be fairly okay. Thank you. That's a good question. And and so interestingly, also I thought the uh, the 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 crew uh, when they were approaching nine Gs, uh, which they had hit that peak acceleration for about ten seconds. Um, once they had gotten up to seven Gs, they stopped reporting their health to ground so they could focus on their breathing. Um, because right, there's kind of you know ways to be able to withstand uh, higher accelerations by kind of, I guess you know making adjustments to your breathing and probably clenching different parts of your yeah. your body in, in, in different ways. You clench your thighs and you do uh, hook breaths. The hick maneuver, right? Isn't that what they call it? I, oh, I've always called maneuver. it hook, but I totally believe that it's also called hick. Yeah, like hick. You gotta make that oh, sound. Oh, I see, like a hick, hiccup, hick. Yeah, you're drawing out different, and it's it's helping you think about what your diaphragm is doing and really push. Um, and you're you're also creating, you're you're making sure that your lungs are filling up, but you're also helping to push blood up into your head. I believe. Yeah. I was just gonna say I've seen the videos of people like you know in in centrifuges where they're going really really fast. Or, yeah. Sorry, where they're go, where they're experiencing significant accelerations, but I never knew what that, uh, what it was called or actually how it worked. Just that you kind of, I mean, I could just tell that they're tenching up and they're adjusting their breathing. And so I didn't realize yeah. that that's, that's kind of, the I mean, way like that they're doing nerd it. that I am, I've, I've actually used like an unintrusive version of that technique on like roller coasters. Cause like I black out really quickly. And like, if you even just clenching your thighs and like making sure that your abs are like tight as you're breathing and like causing yourself to force the air out of your lungs rather than just casually breathing, um, hmm. you can stop, you know, the tunnel vision from setting in uh, a hick light maneuver, <laughs> right, <laughs> or hook right, light right. maneuver. <laughs> yep. So basically what was reported, you know, the astronauts, you know, or, sorry, the cosmonauts and, um, the three cosmonauts made it back, uh, a okay. Uh, ultimately, nobody was you know significantly hurt or anything like that. Roscosmos was basically saying that there was a cable um, in the spacecraft's uh, control panel related to the descent equipment that was damaged. And because of that, uh, basically, they had to transition to this emergency mode uh, rather than using the, you know, the normal uh, descent module software to do a controlled uh, re-entry where you can basically adjust your, your pitch. And I think if you adjust your roll a little bit, that can basically increase your ability to lift or not just because the way the Soyuz is shaped. So it turns out that that was not the whole story. There was a lot more to it. Yeah, like the button stopped working is not super convincing to me. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and it turns out it was it was much much more harrowing. I think, uh, at least in my opinion, than that. So stepping back to Soyuz's reentry, a nominal reentry. What happens is once the right, so the spacecraft itself has three different modules. It's got the two pressurized one that humans live in. There's the uh, I guess starting at the top, going down. At the top, there's the ball-shaped orbital module. That's what would dock with, you know, your space station uh, or other spacecraft, you know, whatever you were doing with that. And then there's just some living space in there, and that's closed and not inhabited on uh, ascent and uh, reentry. Instead, there's the middle module, which is bell-shaped, and that's the one that the cosmonauts and astronauts are in during ascent and reentry, and uh, and that, you know, is. Uh, that's where I guess most of the controls are uh, for the spacecraft. And then behind that is, you know, the classic service module where you have, you know, the electronics, a lot of the, you know, batteries, different equipment. That's where the engine is sitting on the back there. And so the, the names for these are, um, to, to use the Russian acronyms, I figure it'd be helpful because a lot of sources will use those. So the orbital module is, is the BO, 
like Bravo Oscar. Uh, the descent module is, looks like CA in the Cyrillic, in you know Cyrillic, so so CA. And then the service module uh, is is often used. They often use the acronym PAO. So I, if if I say those, um, I'll also try to highlight you know whether it's a service module or. Uh, descent module module or whatever okay so basically they so when you want to separate them so that just the descent module with the heat shield at its base can re-enter you basically point the spacecraft uh, to the nadir so that the orbital module the ball-shaped uh, uh, bo module is closest to earth and that the service module or pao is farthest from earth and when they there's explosive bolts that separate all three of them. And so the PAO basically moves up and away. And the BO uh, has a much higher uh, ballistic coefficient than the descent module. So it feels much more drag and basically gets pulled behind. So you don't have to worry about that one contacting the descent module with your three humans in it uh, when it does its return home. And at that point, the, you know, the CA descent module has its uh, own control system takeover and it can be automatic, it can be manual. Um, and that's what normally happens. Now, on its own, if you were to take the descent module and return it to Earth, it's going to want to trim heat shield first. But just by the shape of the spacecraft, if you have the descent module plus the service module still attached to each other, that's going to want to trim through the atmosphere stably with the hatch forward. In other words, the descent module sitting on top is going to be face forward on reentry. And that isn't quite good because instead of a heat shield being the thing that you're plowing, that, you know, is plowing through the atmosphere, you've got the hatch that normally led to the orbital module, but now is going to basically how you get out of the spacecraft when you're on the ground. And that hatch is now plowing through the atmosphere. At least I think that's the one you use to get out of the ground. There's also a side hatch, but um, that's not important. So yeah, that would be a problem. And it turned out for this mission that the service module did not separate and you did have this two-module stack re-entering face forward, which is what I mean when I said that this is a somewhat harrowing situation that had happened, and was withheld. This information wasn't made public at the time. It took something else to make it public, which is also kind of ridiculous. But anyway, without getting ahead of myself, the reason is the explosive bolts had failed. Um, they were able to separate the orbital module, so thank goodness you didn't have all three of them coming through, but it failed to separate the service module from the descent module. And when you look at some plots of uh, its angle of attack, it looks like it was basically bobbing up and down with pitch uh, while this is happening. And this is scary because at some point you can imagine the the hatch, right, which is not designed to be taking the full thrust of re-entry, can basically fail and melt through, and that's going to be the end of your you know, your cosmonauts, uh, if that were to happen, uh, you couldn't really survive that. Mercifully, what ended up happening is that, so this separation is supposed to happen at 140 kilometers altitude. And so from 140 kilometers to 80 kilometers or so, okay, so while it was passing through 60 kilometers, you know, or after it descended 60 kilometers, enough heat was able to not only did the hatch in the front of the uh, the descent module survive, and so this is kind of a callback to what you were uh, talking about before, Ben, um, that there is at least, thank goodness, thermal protection all around the descent module. Um, but the struts that connect the two uh, finally melted, and then the service module separated, and then naturally the descent module wanted to flip back around, so it's now heat shield first, and you could have your 
safer remainder of the reentry. So that's basically kind of like a, not a fail safe, but uh, kind of. I mean, if all else fails, those struts will melt, right? Like, because mm. they're just not designed to take those temperatures. So I guess it, it kind of worked out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's reminiscent of, uh, wasn't this like the very first uh, Mercury flight with John Glenn, right? Where you had these leather straps that were still holding something in place that shouldn't have been there uh, on the scent. And it just, you know, they managed to melt eventually on re-entry and that fixed things so to speak yeah i think i mean i think it was the re-entry engines oh yeah the, the retro rocket strap the heat shield was only being held against the spacecraft by the straps of the retro package in other words if you tried to jettison the heat shield while you still had the retro package strapped on there and holding it in place well yeah it's it's not so much that the heat shield was jettisoned it's it's that they had that the bag that inflated to cushion the impact with the ground and so that you know essentially is jettisoning the 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 heat shield is no longer firmly held on and so the worry was that that package had failed and that the heat shield wasn't wasn't rigidly attached because mm-hmm. i i believe the heat shield is like basically connected to the other end of the bag and so it inflates and then the heat shield hits the ground and the bag helps i, I could be wrong about that but either way yeah it, everything was fine but it really looked like it wasn't. Okay. So anyway, yeah. But no, yeah, David, I like that. Like, I mean, it really is like, uh, yeah, that's good that one, that the the struts would melt. And so you would get a separation eventually before any of the spacecraft, you know, fail entirely, like like other parts would fail, like the hatch. And then two, that the uh, descent module would want to flip back around and have its uh, heat shield being face forward. Yeah, I mean, that's the good thing about that particular shape is it, worst case, it's always going to orient downward, right? I mean, just as long as there's nothing else attached to it, so. Right, that, and that's the thing, right? It's like, like, what would it take to make, yeah, like, you, you look at your capsule and it's like, what would it take to make your capsule come in, you know, face forward? And it's like, you'd still have to have the thing attached underneath it, you know, big enough to give it the right kind of, you know, aerodynamics to want to, you know, come in with the po- pointy end forward. <laughs> uh, also, to, to stave off emails, I think I said hit the ground, and I meant hit the water. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't catch it yet. My, my Soyuz schema was, was still activated. So, so what had happened was that, right, so the separation mechanism, which um, if you look at a Soyuz, you can't see it directly because it's underneath multilayer insulation. But, you know, as you might expect, it's at the interface of where the bell part of the Soyuz meets the more cylindrical part that's a service module where it's got, you know, solar panels sticking out of. And so at that connection, there's this lattice work uh, where there's five connections uh, between the two. And there's, you know, springs at, you know, each, at each of these five connections. And then there's two pyros at each spring. And the pyros are commanded to blow simultaneously. Only one of the two needs to fire in order to get the separation to happen. And what ended up happening was that one of these... Uh, bolts failed altogether. And I guess neither pyro, I mean, by inference, neither pyro actually fired and left the service module still connected. And I guess it's hard enough, it's a strong enough connection that you didn't end up having much like flapping or something happening. Cause you know what I mean? Like if, if it's connected at only one point instead of five, you might think like, is it going to be kind of wiggling back and forth and kind of hitting the module and then bouncing and then hitting the module or something like that. And uh, evidently that was not happening. But, um, yeah, uh, they think it was basically due to uh, the uh, the bolts. Um, basically, the electromagnetic environment that they were uh, 
experiencing on orbit uh, was uh, was bad. And there was uh, some electrical discharging happening to them that basically, I guess, fried them and made them unable to fire when they got the signal. Okay, so the, the pyros, not the bolts. Right, right. Yeah, the pyros failed because of that. Because I was like, dude, if you, if you have bolts on orbit being like heat treated so that they can no longer be severed by <laughs> pyrotechnic charges, that's that's crazy. But okay. Gotcha. And and I thought that's funny because like uh, last week you talking about the um the solar uh, arrays on station and the potential differences. Uh, it was yeah, it was right. thought to be the d- potential difference between the spacecraft and the outer hull of the station that uh, resulted in this uh, hmm. this issue. Base and and at the same time, ISS had recently upgraded its power capacity, and so they think that's why that made it a little worse and why the TMA, uh, not an earlier TMA, had failed, but this one in particular. And so they they put in some new bolts, um, and I thought I think this was also interesting. Uh, in the future, they had a, a software change. There was another TMA on orbit as well, eventually, and they you know uh, uploaded the software patch to it, um, and I also had the software on you know future Soyuzes. And uh, what they did was that in the failure to uh, separate if the PAO was still connected, that it would actually use its thrusters to re-enter sideways. So the heating oh. would be worse and you'd melt the struts sooner rather than later. Yeah, you like strip it off. Right. And so, because yeah, I guess you're, you know, you're still above, you're above most of the atmosphere, I guess, at 140. I mean, at 140 kilometers, you are, right? Um, you're still going to get enough heat to eventually melt you, but the sooner the better. But like, so that's, that's kind of the idea with that. I mean, it, it's, it's chemotherapy for spacecraft, right? Like, yeah, we're going to put a poison in your body but it's going to kill mm. the quickest replicating cells more than it's going to kill the non quickly replicating cells. So it's like, you know, a little bit of, of poison is the cure. That's absolutely crazy. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Still terrifying. Yeah. That, 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 that's a really good kind of analogy for it. Yeah. Because you're going to get rid of the part of the spacecraft that you do not want there anymore. So this is crazy. This is not the first time that this had happened, actually. Soyuz 5 had a similar situation further back in the day. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the original Soyuz 5. But I don't want to talk too much about that one. But that, I guess, was the first time that you ever had a Soyuz spacecraft enter uh, face forward. And so that could be a twist in the future. So I'll just leave it at that. But more pertinent to this uh, event, um, what made uh, Roscosmos finally come clean was that the very next deorbit and reentry in April of 2008, so April of the next year, TMA 11, the next one, came back and the same thing happened. It failed to separate the service module. And this time, the separation, the burn through happened only at 60 some kilometers altitude, which again, that's like 20 kilometers closer to the surface of the earth, 25% closer than when TMA 10s burned through. And so, yeah, very, very scary. At that point, they kind of came clean about the issue and uh, an emergency EVA was done (laughs) to TMA 12. That was the spacecraft that was on orbit that they put this software patch, they updated it to it. And they also went up there and grabbed one of the bolts to bring back home so that they could help with the, uh, the error analysis or the failure analysis, I should say, and kind of fix that. And so, uh, yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, uh, not not very good partnership, to be blunt, um, to go and hide something this important, uh, especially since I believe there was a NASA astronaut on, uh, on the next uh, mission coming back. So in any event, um, I don't want to start, like, drawing too many parallels, but just saying that last bit there, it's making me think of, like, okay, well, we had a coolant leak on a Soyuz, and then a coolant leak on a Progress, and now a coolant leak... Le- a coolant leak on Nauka. I mean, 
there's a theme, and I just wonder if we're getting the whole story necessarily since uh, the idea of, you know, debris, or, you know, or micrometeorite hit was responsible yeah. for the first two of them. I mean, come on, at some point, <laughs> these, these uh, micrometeorites are not, you know, uh, Russian-phobic and just purposely going after radiators on Russian spacecraft. I mean, that doesn't seem reasonable, but in any event... Uh, this was this rather harrowing <laughs> week in spaceflight history. Well, thank you for keeping me on the edge of my seat the whole time, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> um, next week is the 24th to the 30th of October. David, it's your turn. Do you have a clue for us? I do. Uh, next week in 2009, and the clue is nominal tumble. All right. Well, if you have a guess as to what this clue is in reference to, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com. Shoot us a toot on Mastodon. Use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. So let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, and thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. And we have five different events. Uh, I think most of them launches. What's the first launch, Ben? I mean, technically it's most. Uh, first uh, is U.S. Spacewalk 89. So U.S. Spacewalk 89 is going to be collecting surface samples on the exterior of the station, and they're going to be changing out a high-def camera. The spacewalk is expected to begin... Uh, at 8.35 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, October 19th. And the coverage is going to begin a little earlier than that at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and then after that, on the 19th, we have a Starlink launch, of course, and there's another one coming later on. So this is Starlink Group 7.5, uh, launching, of course, on a Falcon 9 Block 5. Uh, and it's launching from Vandenberg, actually, uh, from Space Launch Complex 4E. And the launch time for that is uh, 0702 UTC through 1122 UTC. And uh, then uh, next up on October 21st, Saturday, we have a very exciting uh, ISRO human spaceflight uh, milestone, the Gaganyan Abort Test Booster. Um, L40. And so the mission, uh, TVD1, uh, which is the, uh, well, basically will involve uh, launching the rocket uh, up into uh, an altitude of 11 kilometers, at which point um, an in-flight abort scenario will be initiated and the capsule's escape system will be tested and should basically get away from the booster and make its way to 15 or 16 kilometers. Yeah, uh, really cool. Um, again, this is October 21st uh, with a window from 0100 UTC to 0500 UTC. And it'll be taking place from Satish Dhawan Space Center in India. First Gaganyan flight. So after that, we have the other Starlink launch that you can watch. The time is not quite as solid, um, but this is Starlink Group 624. And... What we have is the earliest time that it could fly. It's a or later situation. So that's Saturday, October 21st uh, at or later than 1930 hours UTC. Um, and this one is flying out of the Cape uh, Slick 40. And then after that, on the 25th, we have Russian Spacewalk 61. Uh, this is to, let's see, we have a list here. Uh, this is to install a synthetic radar communication system, uh, deploy a solar sail tech satellite, uh, replace electrical connector patch panels, and photograph that goddamn radiator. So <laughs> uh, I knew that had to be in there somewhere, right? I was like, well, they're doing all this other stuff. So yeah. <laughs> the coverage for that begins at 2 p.m., and the spacewalk is expected 
expected to begin at 2.30 p.m., and that's Eastern time, and it will last approximately six hours and 45 minutes. So, yep, you can watch and hopefully find out along with the cosmonauts mm -hmm. what's going on with that radiator. <laughs> no chance. All right. Those are your upcoming space flight events. Which means it's time to do the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Mr. Cesium, Astro, Citronaut, Colin, Cy Kyle, The Greek, and Dink Nasamines for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.